Hello and welcome to On the Holocaust, a podcast from Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center. I'm your host, Nate Nelson. By 1946, Warsaw was a fraction of the great city it had once been. Formerly a center of culture in Eastern Europe, it had served as a theater for two popular uprisings during the war. By the time the fighting had ended, vast swaths of city blocks and even entire neighborhoods and districts were completely leveled. You can check out pictures from the time. It looks more like a post-apocalypse Hollywood set than a real place. A couple of housing blocks, a single church, stand alone amid miles of rubble. On September 18, 1946, a group of Jews and Poles ventured out into the ruins and began digging. It wouldn't have been obvious, from the outside at least, why anyone would do such a thing. Anything of value, surely, had been destroyed twice over and buried under heavy brick. What could possibly have been found in the remains other than broken furniture and skeletons? But this group of venturers had a mission. With shovels and metal probes, they began to search for one of the most important, most secretive artifacts from the war. I'm Samuel Casso, and I teach history at uh, Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Dr. Samuel Casso is perhaps the world's leading expert on the person that we're going to be following in this story, Emmanuel Ringelblum. Everybody who knew him uh, remembered him as a very serious and at the same time as a very giving person uh, who cared deeply about everything that he did. In the 1930s, Ringelblum was in the midst of carving out a pretty remarkable life, already an accomplished political activist and historian. He was uh, a person who tried to do many things. He, uh, before the war in uh, Poland, he was active in uh, Jewish politics. That is, he was an active uh, a member of the uh, left labor Zionists. To say that he was committed to his political beliefs would be an understatement. The left labor Zionists would have a, a meeting every January to mark the anniversary of the death of Bear Barakov. And uh, everybody had to arrive by a certain time because then they would lock the doors uh, to keep out uh, hecklers, uh, to keep out opponents from the Bund or from the communists. And, uh, be, and one year, uh, it was 20 below zero, and Ringelblum arrived late and he didn't want to bang on the door to disrupt the meeting, but he also didn't go home. And he stood at attention for an hour in the 20 degree frost, uh, standing rigidly at attention. And when the comrades came out, they saw that he had uh, uh, gotten frostbite on his uh, nose. And they said, why did you stand like that? And he said, this is the punishment I took upon myself for having arrived too late to honor the memory of Bear Borochov. Ringelblum's staunch moral character bordered on intense, but he also had a softer side. Like in 1930, he and his wife had a son, Yuri. He was their only child. 
he was uh, he was the apple of his eye. Uh, he, he cared about him very, very much. Yuri was a glorified celebrity in the high school classrooms where his father taught history. I was able to track down one of his former students many years ago who told me that uh, the girls in her class would often make fun of uh, Ringelblum because he was going from one job to another, and sometimes he'd come into class a little sweaty, a little disheveled. Uh, The girls would uh, giggle. Uh, And when a day... uh, uh, and when uh, there was a day that had a scheduled exam and they felt that they didn't want to take the exam that day, they would hatch a plan that one of the girls would uh, raise her hand and uh, Ringelblum would call on her and she'd say, Dr. Ringelblum, uh, how's your son Yuri doing? You haven't talked about him for a long time. And Ringelblum would start to quell, start to gush, and he'd pull out his wallet and uh, uh, show the girls pictures and talk about Yuri. And then the bell would ring, and they would have an extra day to study for the exam. This duality of intense drive and care for others defined Emanuel Ringelblum. But it would only really be put to the test in the late 1930s when his entire world everything he'd known and been building for 20 years, began to fall apart. In September 1939, the Germans took Warsaw. Almost immediately, the occupiers began a campaign of intimidation against the city's Jews, freezing bank accounts, mobilizing forced labor, and ordering them to wear armbands and display Jewish stars on their doors and windows. It all culminated in November 1940, when the Nazis informed all Jews that they had two weeks to cordon themselves off in a small section of the city. They were living in their own homes, and they may have put by enough food to survive. And then suddenly there's a knock on the door. You have to get out of your house. You have 15 minutes to pack, and we're all sending you into the Warsaw Ghetto. Uh, in in a few hours, they become totally uh Uh, penniless, totally dependent. Nearly 400,000 people were packed into just over one square mile of land. On November 16th, the neighborhood was closed off to the rest of the city. A ghetto had been established, or a prison, or worse. One inmate captured the feeling. I entered. I crossed the boundary, not just of a residential quarter, but of a zone of reality, because what I saw and experienced cannot be understood by our reason, thoughts, or imagination. What little relief came by way of food rations or aid supported by Western organizations was really hardly enough to stem the rampant starvation and disease, and that disease and starvation was only amplified by an environment of terror. One- and two-year-old children were sitting on a sofa in the middle of the road and crying, Mama, while Jews, their hearts bleeding, were passing by, watching the horrible scene and crying. The Germans had probably done it deliberately. They could have taken the children away, but they didn't. On the contrary, they let the Jews see and grieve. What is one to do in a place like this? Starving, exhausted, under constant threat of torture and death, 
walking past starving children, knowing that you can't help or even comfort them. Emanuel Ringelblum didn't flee Warsaw when the Nazis invaded, and he wasn't prepared to give in to them now. Powerless against his captors, he had only his mind and his two hands at his disposal. So he did the only thing that he could think to do. He began simply to write down what was happening around him. In one journal entry, he explained why. The war produced rapid changes in Jewish life in the towns of Poland. Each day was different from the next. It was therefore important to capture every event in the heat of the moment, when it was still fresh and pulsating. After the ghetto was established, Ringelblum gathered a group of other inmates, former artists, historians, teachers, from a wide range of political and social backgrounds, to also record their experiences and what they observed happening around the ghetto, as well as collect documents of the fate of Polish Jews in other areas. I thought it expedient to organize this highly important work as a group undertaking, not only adults but also young people and in some instances even children. Our aim was a presentation of a photographically true and detailed picture of what the Jewish population had to experience, to think, and to suffer. There was this sense that we're going to build a historical record to help Polish Jewry rebuild after the war, uh, to uh, expose the mistakes, to expose the elites who had failed, uh, perhaps to uh, uh, give... Uh, Polish Jewry uh, evidence after world after the war was over to avoid the mistakes that had been made. Ringelblum's group met every Saturday, and so they took on the name Oneg Shabbat or Oneg Shabbos in Yiddish. You have to find new sources that reflect the ordinary life of poor Jews, folklore, jokes. Uh, the uh, traces, the uh, hints of the Jewish everyday. This means building a new kind of archive in the Warsaw Ghetto. The main goal of Oneg Shabbat was to just record everything that was happening in the ghetto. From one of the archivists, Cecilia Slapakova. It's 10 o'clock, a hot sunny day. The Jewish street pulsates with the intense rhythms of its anemic life. People push, hurry, shove, stand close against the wall. A mix of faces, voices, smiles, rolls, fresh, tasty, white, cheap. Dear good people, have mercy on a mother of three orphans. Oh my God, catch the thief. I have a hairdresser's appointment. Thank God I earned some money this week. It's such a beautiful spring. You so much want to live. Their first priority, which they uh, started when the archive was organized in 1940, was to collect stuff. And they collected stuff right up until the very end. What do I mean by stuff? Theater tickets in the ghetto, tram tickets from uh, the ghetto, Judenrat instructions on how to make edible the frozen rotten potatoes that the Germans dumped in as part of the food ration. Uh, so that's one agenda uh, that is collecting the evidence of the material culture, the doorbell instructions. When five families are living in one apartment, the number of rings for each family. The second uh, agenda item, which uh, from the point of view of the historian like myself is extremely valuable, 
is their project, which they began in 1941, to study Jewish society under Nazi occupation. And what they did is that they came up with 80, 80 different topics, women under the Nazi occupation, children, corruption, religious life, German-Jewish relations, Polish-Jewish relations. Each topic had a team leader to develop uh, questionnaires and bullet points, you might say, uh, to be investigated. And uh, some members of the Yonik Shabbos were team leaders of four or five different topics. And this was supposed to result in a study of 1,600 pages. And this study was in full swing with interviews and essays. As you'd imagine, actually doing this work was perilous. Merely stepping into the wrong place could mean earning the attention of a policeman or coming into contact with disease. So these interviewers literally had to take their lives in their hands and uh, risk getting sick, risk getting typhus, and uh, talk to these people in great detail and uh, uh, then get the information back to the uh, archive. And in fact, a number of these Onik Shabbos workers uh, died. Now, there was another challenge, uh, which gets back to the issue of secrecy. At no time ever could a member of the Oynik Shabbos staff go up to anybody in the ghetto and say, I'm working for the secret archive and I want you to tell me about this, this, or or that. You had to keep this project absolutely secret. Uh, and that was very, very difficult because there were so many in, informers uh, who were ready to uh, uh, pass on information to the Gestapo. So the trick was, how do you interview people? The cover, the camouflage, was the fact that Ringelblum was a director of a big organization in the Warsaw Ghetto called the Self-Help or the Alenhilf. The Self-Help uh, was partially funded by the Joint Distribution Committee, and since the U.S. was not at war with Germany until December 1941, the Alenhilf had quasi-legal status in the eyes of the Germans. With their cover as aid workers, the archivists were able to carry out the work of documenting ghetto life. But that would soon change in the summer of 1942. Gringelblum ordered everybody to simply hand over their unfinished notes, their unfinished materials, uh, and uh, hand them over to uh, the archive, and they were uh, buried on the night of August 3rd, 1942. Everything was shoved into metal boxes and placed deep underground, because what was taking place around them threatened the entire project and everybody involved in it. On July 22, 1942, Nazi High Command ordered the deportation of Warsaw's Jews to the Treblinka death camp. In the weeks and months that followed, Poland's Jews would be gradually, methodically, exterminated. From the archivist Chaim Kaplan. I haven't the strength to hold a pen in my hand. I am broken, shattered. My thoughts are jumbled. I don't know where to start or stop. I have seen Jewish Warsaw through 40 years of events, but never before has she worn such a face. What we dreaded most has come. Abraham Lewin. 
The Jewish streets are an appalling sight. The gloom is indescribable. The savagery of the police during the roundup, the murderous brutality, they drag girls from the rickshaws, empty out flats, and leave the property strewn everywhere. The pavements are fenced off. You walk in the middle of the road. Certain streets are completely closed off with fences and gates, and you can't get in there. The impression is of cages. Those who are far away cannot imagine our bitter situation. They will not understand and will not believe that day after day, thousands of men, women, and children, innocent of any crime, were taken to their death. By year's end, 80% of the Jews in Warsaw would be deported and killed. And, according to Onik Shabbat's records, nearly 99% of the children. What good is an archive project in the face of that? One has to step back and, and, and wonder, how did they keep going uh, when their lives were in such danger in, in the summer of 1942? When the Germans forced over 400,000 Jews into just over a square mile, starving and freezing innocent people who had once had fruitful lives before their freedoms were stripped from them, the act of documenting it all seemed very important. But now, the majority of the Jews of Warsaw had been murdered, with staggering pace and efficiency. Against that, what purpose was there in an archive? One of the Onigspot writers, Gustava Yaretska, reflected on the irony of just how insufficient words were in the face of such acts. The desire to write is as strong as the repugnance of words. We hate words because they too often have served as a cover for emptiness or meanness. We despise them, for they pale in comparison with the emotion tormenting us. She says, how could we Jews have known that the story of history is not a story of moral progress from savagery to decency, as we've been taught, but that as we look at Germans, the civilized, educated Germans murdering kids in the streets, that the story of history seems to have gone in the opposite direction, that history has gone in the direction of savagery and of brutality, that we were totally wrong about the direction of history's wheel. The record must be hurled like a stone under history's wheel in order to stop it. One can lose all hopes except the one, that the suffering and destruction of this war will make sense when they are looked at from a distant historical perspective. From sufferings unparalleled in history, from bloody tears and bloody sweat, a chronicle of days of hell is being composed, which will help explain the historical reasons for why people came to think as they did and why regimes arose that caused such suffering. Meaning that she hopes someday if people in the future read what she's writing, and they say, oh my God, how could we have allowed this to happen? How could this have happened? Let's make sure that such mass murder never happens again. So that's what she meant by stone under history's wheel. It was that sense that now we are uh, burying time capsules under the ground that will uh, uh, provide evidence for justice in the future, that will uh, convince people that this really happened, uh, that maybe the writings that we're doing might serve in some small way to help avert such a disaster in the future. So I think that a sense of mission was very, very strong. 
Little prospect remained of continuing the archive project, at least in its previous form. The ghetto comments had disappeared. Once there were schools, political gatherings, marketplaces, and organizational networks, now there were only isolated housing blocks and shops, and barracks which housed the soon-to-be-deported. Even if there were modicums of Jewish life and culture remaining, one could no longer walk the street or talk to people to record it, or do much of anything, really, without the direct threat of kidnapping and deportation. So, leveraging the only connections to the outside that they had left, Ringelblum and his two most trusted colleagues prepared reports to be smuggled to the Polish government in exile. They described the atrocities being carried out against the Jews in the hope that it would awaken sympathy and action in the rest of Europe. No one can delude himself. If events continue to develop as they have, the Jewish population of Poland will cease to exist. Only action on the international stage, action that the Germans would clearly understand, can rescue the remaining Jews from total destruction. The reports did end up reaching the Polish government in exile. Through their effort, the group played a major role in bringing the atrocities against the Jews to the attention of the outside world. Yet for the remaining Jews of Warsaw, and among them the Onyx Shabbat members who had survived the mass deportation period, time was running out. The 60 members of the Onyx Shabbos uh, became 50, became 40, became 30. Every day another key member of the archive was hauled off to uh, the boxcars. And yet they kept on going. It was clear that these were unprecedented historical events. It was not clear whether any Jews would be around by the end of it all to tell of what happened. That made it ever more important to record what was happening in the ghetto. But at the same time, it was becoming nearly impossible to do so. The archivists who remained began on a second set of archives, but fear and distance made it harder to organize in a meaningful way and introduce conflicts about whether and how to proceed. What archivists remained had either taken refuge in shops, working 16-hour days, or went into hiding, some only to be found and taken away by German soldiers anyway. Ringelblum was a perfect example of all of this, shuffling back and forth between hiding and continuing his work out in the open. He is torn between his responsibilities to the archive and his natural desire as a father and a husband to go into hiding and to save his wife and son. You could see that Ringelblum was on the verge of a nervous collapse during that summer. Uh, his handwriting changes. He, he doesn't write complete sentences. One goes before five o'clock, before the centuries, in order to be shot. Hostages, 10,000 a day. The story about orphanages for 10,000 children. The behavior of the police. Through the sick on the carts. People report for deportation because of hunger. He and the other members of the archive are living in constant fear. The day Ringelblum decided he could no longer continue his work on the archive was January 18th, 1943. Yitzhak Giderman, one of his personal mentors, had been caught trying to warn his neighbors about an SS roundup, and so he was shot. My hand shakes as I write these words. Who knows if a future historian reviewing this list will not remember my name, Emanuel Ringelblum. The following month, Ringelblum made his escape into hiding. 
Along with his wife Yehudis and his son Yuri, he took refuge in a bunker on the Aryan side of the city, and he ordered that the second set of archives be packaged into two large aluminum milk cans, then buried underground in what remained of Warsaw. Israel Lichtenstein, who buried the documents, added in his final testament, quote, We are the redeeming sacrifice for the Jewish people. I believe the nation will survive. We, the Jews of Eastern Europe, are the redeemers of the people of Israel. On March 7, 1944, German and Polish police received a tip about a bunker where Jews were hiding. They visited the residence of the Volskis, a Polish family living in the city, and knew exactly where to look. They seized the head of the household, brutally beating him, then made a beeline for the hot house out back. One of the policemen fired a gun in the air and shouted that anyone who didn't come out would be immediately gassed to death right then and there. Finally, the flap concealing the entrance to the bunker was raised from the inside, and in the opening, the victims started to appear one by one. First, the mothers came out with their children. The poor kids blinked, dazzled by the daylight and the glare of the sun, which they had not seen for such a long time. Some of them were crying. Their mothers hugged them helplessly and desperately. Among those mothers and children were Yehudis and Yuri Ringelblum, along with Emmanuel. They were sent to Paviak prison in the ghetto to await death. Behind bars, Emmanuel Ringelblum wrote a letter to the YIVO Institute in New York. After a short but remarkable career of writing down the history of the Polish and Jewish peoples, these would be the final words he'd ever have to say on the matter. He chose to end his letter by emphasizing that, even amid the worst atrocities in human history, expressions of Jewish life and culture remained. In the SS camp, to which part of Warsaw Jews were deported, camps that became places of bitter suffering and slow death, the cultural activists continue their work. In Poniatowa, Travniki, and other camps, an underground network of mutual aid was set up, as were units of the Jewish fighting organization. From time to time, there were cultural events and artistic performances. The flow of cultural and public life continued so long as there were Jews living in groups, so that the embers continued to be preserved, even at their feeblest. Know that the cultural and public activists, until their last moments, remained faithful to the ideals of the culture of the times and the ideal of human redemption. Until their last breaths, they held in their hands the banner of culture and its war against barbarity. This is what we wanted to tell you, dear friends. It is doubtful whether we will ever see each other again. Please send, in our names, our warmest regards to all the activists and the fighters for the new Jewish culture and the general deliverance. Dr. E. Ringelblum. Emmanuel, Yehudis, and little Yuri were shot one week later. The Oneg Shabbat Archives a history of Warsaw's Jews told by Warsaw's Jews through starvation, exhaustion, and many hours of toil, sat deep beneath the city as World War II came to a close. To avoid the enemy getting to them first, a select few people had been told the actual locations of these burials. The problem was this. 
of the 60-plus Onik Shabbat members who stuffed fears, sorrows, and dreams into those metal containers, only three survived. Hirschwasser, by all logic, should not have been among them. In 1943, he was put on a train destined for Treblinka. He jumped off and, through injury, managed to run away into hiding. In 1944, the Nazis discovered his hideout in North Warsaw. An intense gunfight ensued, and three of his friends died. But Wasser and his wife Bluma, also an Onig Shabbat member, survived. So twice, according to all logic, Hirschwasser was doomed to die at the hands of Nazi soldiers. But somehow, he and Bluma made it through. It was a miracle, two miracles, which had ramifications far beyond him alone, because Hirsch Wasser, as former secretary of Oneg Shabbat, was the only surviving archivist who had any idea where those documents were buried. All hope for finding them laid on his shoulders. In the fall of 1946, excavations began, and to say excavations is no exaggeration here. The diggers had to move carefully and slowly because it was dangerous work. Like seasoned archaeologists, they built tunnels fitted with ventilation shafts deep under the ruins. They took long metal probes and pushed them deep into the debris to scour for what was hidden to the naked eye. For many days they searched like this, until, on September 18, 1946, one of those metal probes made a clang instead of a thump. A member of the search team stepped into the crevice in the earth, bent down, and came back up with a metal box. The box was worn, wearied, covered in a thick greenish mold. When tilted, one could hear water inside. The paper inside, they could only imagine the state that it was in. Together, the team dug up the ten such metal boxes, lifting them up out from the rubble and eventually bringing them back to the Jewish Historical Institute in Poland to see what might have been recovered. Gradually, with the precision of a surgeon, the historians, and three archivists who waited years for this very moment, uncovered page by page, separating and drying them off. Slowly, very slowly, they discovered the journal entries, the essays, the last letters of their fallen friends and countrymen. They found the work of once great writers and the fleeting thoughts of young Jews who didn't have a chance. Like one boy, David Graeber, 19 years old, who had been charged with helping to bury the boxes. Before he finished burying, he added just one more letter to the collection. What we were unable to cry and shriek out to the world, we buried in the ground. I would love to see the moment in which the great treasure will be dug up and scream the truth at the world. So the world may know all. So the ones who did not live through it may be glad, and we may feel like veterans with medals on our chests. We would be the fathers, the teachers, and the educators of the future. But no, we shall certainly not live to see it and therefore I write my last will. May the treasure fall into good hands, may it last into better times, may it alarm and alert the world to what happened. We may now die in peace. We fulfilled our mission. May history attest for us. The prisoners of the Warsaw Ghetto had no means of defeating their captors. No amount of resistance would have beat the Nazi forces. No amount of running would have saved most of them. They had no options. But in some of the darkest, most dangerous streets that humans have ever been forced to walk on, the Onik Shabbat archivists managed to transform their pens into shivs. As the writer Gustavo Yaretska wrote, These documents and notes are a remnant resembling a clue in a detective story. 
I remember from childhood such a novel by Conan Doyle, in which the dying victim writes with a faint hand one word on the wall, containing the proof of the criminal's guilt. That word, scrawled by the dying man, influenced my imagination in the past. We are noting the evidence of the crime. With dying hands, the Jews of Warsaw wrote the word on the wall containing the proof of the criminal's guilt. But they also did much more than that. They wrote of themselves, who they were, what they felt, what they did, and what they dreamed of one day doing that they never got to. So ultimately, the Nazis murdered almost every person from the Warsaw Ghetto, including the Onigspot archivists, but they could not erase their memory. Think about this, that if the Oynik Shabbos archive had been lost, we really wouldn't have had any of the many fine books that have, that have been written about the Warsaw Ghetto. We would have had a record of German meetings, of German decisions, of German orders, but the Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto would have been remembered as a mass of faceless victims, as objects, as not people with names, as not people with agency. It's only because of the Oynik Shabbos, with all the documentation, that uh, you could write about the Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto as people who are part of a community, as people who have an identity. The Germans thought they would not only murder the Jews, but they would decide how they would be remembered. And the Jewish historian Isaac Schiffer said that what we know about murdered peoples is usually what their killers choose to say about them. And Ringelblum was determined that even if he and his comrades died, that they would be remembered on the basis of Jewish and not German sources. And this is an enormous achievement. That concludes this episode, but it's not the end of the Onikshabat story. There are all kinds of details, characters, and even entire subplots that we didn't have time to cover here. In fact, you heard about the two buried archives, but there's actually a third whole archive. The most mysterious of them all, actually, as it's not yet been found all these years later. If you're interested in learning more, visit yadvashem.org. This has been On the Holocaust from Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center. Our program is produced by Itamar Swissa, Danny Timor, and Ron Levy. Research and content management by Jonathan Clapsaddle, Irit Dagan, and Daphna Dolinko. The story you heard was written by me, Nate Nelson. Thanks for listening. Hit subscribe for more episodes just like this one.